And all God's people say, Amen. While you're standing, if you please grab your Bibles and open up to Hebrews chapter 2. For context, I'll be reading the passage we also covered last week. So we'll be starting in Hebrews chapter 2 in verse 1, reading through verse 9 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, here reads God's word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, uh, you made him a Start again. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control at present. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Let's pray together. Father, you are a good and merciful God. We come to you now as needy recipients of your grace, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and wills that are conformed to yours. Teach us now through your Spirit so that we may behold your goodness and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated, beloved. As those who have been brought forth from death to life, from darkness to light, from blindness to receiving perfect spiritual vision, it can at times become overwhelming for Christians to think about all that God has done on their behalf. To consider the gospel in and of itself can and should seize our attention. That God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, Titus 3.5. That according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter 1.3. That God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have 
been saved. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. When we consider all that we have committed against a holy God and the wrath that is being stored up, that it was paid for by Christ upon the cross, our continual response, beloved, is humility and gratitude. Think about it. That God would choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, not by any works done by us, but based entirely on his love and his mercy. That is beyond our understanding. It causes us at times to even question, why me? Why have you chosen me? Why have you predestined me for adoption to be your child through Jesus Christ? And we are reminded of the amazing answer that we see recorded in Scripture. That God has done so according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. It is all for his glory. Through his Son, he makes the unrighteous righteous. Through his Son, he makes the unholy holy. Through his Son, he makes those who are in bondage free and free indeed. Yet with all of these amazing realities, the believer will still endure sufferings in this world. As we read throughout the New Testament, we see that persecution is the norm for those who follow Christ. Comfort has never been the road that a Christian travels. It has been said of Western Christianity, quote, We have become committed to relieving the pain behind our problems rather than using our pain to wrestle more passionately with the character and purposes of God. Feeling better has become more important than knowing God. And worse, we assume that people who know God always feel better, end quote. You know, it's during times of difficulty, times of suffering, that we are tempted to think that God doesn't care. We lose focus of the fact that he has chosen us, that his son died for us, that nothing can separate us from his love, that we are now and forever in Christ. And when our focus shifts from his grace and, and from the gospel, we can begin to think that we are unimportant to God. But beloved, we are created in God's image. And he has lavished upon us his love, which means that we are tremendously significant to him. I want you to stop and consider that for a moment. This morning, the title of this sermon is Crowned with Glory and Honor. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 this morning. And as we look to that passage, it has been 
rightly said that the job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. The writer of Hebrews spent all of chapter 1 declaring the supremacy of God's Son to comfort the afflicted Jewish believers. And at the beginning of chapter 2, he warned against drifting from the gospel to afflict the comfortable. And beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2, he returns to comforting the afflicted by reminding the believers of their significance that was established by God and restored by his Son. And as we study through this passage this morning, we'll address three point, points. First one, the crown established. Secondly, we'll look at the crown forfeited. And lastly, the crown restored. Established, forfeited, and restored. So before we get, begin in this text this morning, it's important to remember the context of this book of Hebrews, that the original audience was made of Jewish believers who were enduring hardship, hardship as Christians, and they were tempted to abandon the Christian faith and return to Judaism. One temptation they had was to elevate angels, to elevate their status and to worship them. And thus, beginning in chapter 1, the author begins his argument about why Jesus is superior to angels. And as we continue into chapter 2, the Holy Spirit directs the writer of Hebrews to address Jesus' humanity. Some scholars suggest that the Jewish believers could have used Jesus' humanity, including his death, to try to reason away from believing in his deity. This, they argue, is why the writer stresses Jesus' deity in the very opening of the letter by referring to him as the Son and the Son of God. He states in the opening of the letter that Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. That he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He makes it crystal clear that Jesus is God. And possibly to address those who are using Jesus' humanity as an excuse to abandon the faith. He begins to argue the necessity of the incarnate Son. And as, we'll show, as we shall see this morning in this passage, he begins arguing that the incarnation of the Son was to fulfill God's purpose for man. And so let's look at our first point this morning, the crown established. I want to read from verse 5 through the middle of verse 8, looking again at your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower, you made him for a little while lower than the angels, for you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control." Though we're going to address verse 5 a little later as we look at the third point, we're going to go more in depth into this verse. It's important to note that the author here is picking up where he left off in his argument against angels and the exaltation of angels. Where he left off in chapter 1, he briefly had departed from that argument about Jesus being superior to angels. 
at the beginning of chapter 2 as he exhorted his listeners. But now he's back and he's speaking about angels, specifically that they are not the ones that God has subjected the world to come. In other words, he is saying, do not exalt angels, for they will not be the ones who will rule the world to come. We know later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, the world to come is referred to as a homeland. It's referred to as a better country, a heavenly city. In chapter 12, it's referred to as the heavenly Jerusalem. It is the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation that will be enjoyed forever by God's people. And the author of Hebrews puts some context to his argument. And he quotes Psalm 8 here in our text this morning. Looking at verses 4 through 6, he quotes Psalm 8 here. And rather pointing to David as the author, he states in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. That's an interesting way to quote Scripture. Surely he knew who had penned it. Surely he knew it was David, and he knew it was found in the Psalter. But he was very intentional in saying it is testified somewhere. His point was to show the unimportance of the one who penned it, that the only importance was God who speaks it, as it has been his argument from the opening of this book. And again, he starts in verse 5 with the point that angels are not going to be ruling the world to come. And thus he leaves the audience asking the question, then who is God going to use to rule? And the answer, he says, is found in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And he quotes them here in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 6 through the beginning of verse 8. He says, quotes, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, before we run ahead to understand how the writer saw Christ in this psalm, let's read a bit more about this psalm again. This morning, Nina's opened the word and read it to us from Psalm 8. But I want you to hold your place here in Hebrews and return to Psalm 8. So go ahead and hold your place in Hebrews and return to Psalm 8. Now, the author of Hebrews quotes in verses 4 through 6, but we want to read a little bit more. I want you to start in Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3 and reading all the way to verse 8. So Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3, we read, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas." So the first question as we read this psalm is, who is the psalm referring to? Verse 4 refers to man and the son of man. And though the son of man is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, 
In Hebrew, son of man always simply means man. For example, more than 80 times God addresses Ezekiel as the son of man. For example, Ezekiel 21.2, he says, son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach. Ezekiel 30 verse 2, son of man, prophesy and say. Over and over he refers to Ezekiel as son of man. Psalm 8 is speaking of humans, of human beings. Look at verses 6 and 7 in Psalm 8. Verses 6 and 7 again, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. This reminds us of God's original plan for mankind. God's plan for humanity originally laid out in the opening of Genesis 6 speaks almost exactly like this psalm. In Genesis chapter 1, in verses 26 through 28, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Almost exactly what the psalmist declared in Psalm 8. So what does that mean? It means that Adam and Eve were the king and queen of original creation. God placed them in a glorious paradise and he walked among them. He crowned them with glory and honor and put everything in subjection to them. Nothing was outside of their control. And I know this is hard for us to comprehend today because we only see mankind in his fallen nature. But that was not so at creation. Humans were created as wonderful beings. Francis Schaeffer said, quote, human beings are wonderful because they are made in God's image, end quote. Out of all that God has created, only humans are made in his image. This is an amazing reality. It, it baffled the psalmist and it baffles us today. That the maker of heaven and earth would be mindful of me, that he would be mindful of you, is incredible to think about. Look how the psalmist put it again in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Have you ever questioned God in a similar fashion? I mean, think of all of creation. Think of the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the works of God's hand. Those of you that like space and look into studying different things and how big the universe is, I want you to think about this. One light year, one light year is about six trillion miles. Now just write six trillion on your paper right now. 
It's a big number. One light year is six trillion miles, and the size of the observable universe is around 94 billion light years across. You say, uh, I don't do math, that's a big number. Those of you that are note takers, write 55 and then add 24 zeros after it. It's a big number. But that is only the observable universe. Scientists estimate that the universe is at least 250 times larger than the observable universe, or at least 7 trillion light years across. Now, you mathematicians, that's 7 trillion times 6 trillion, which is a really, really, really big number. Don't spend the rest of the service doing that computation. But it's very large. Let's put it in comparison. The Earth is roughly 8,000 miles in diameter. And yet for us, it feels so big. But it is absolutely puny in comparison to the universe. To further illustrate how small we are in comparison to all of God's creation, it is estimated that 1.3 million Earths could fit inside of the sun which, by the way, is only an average-sized star. There are stars a hundred times larger than the sun. As a matter of fact, scientists estimate that five billion suns could fit into the largest known star. There you go. Okay, my mind is like... So let's bring it back down to just the galaxy that we know of, the one that we're in. Let's talk about just the Milky Way. Astronomers estimate that there are over 100 billion stars in the Milky Way alone. And outside of the Milky Way, there are millions upon millions of other galaxies. Yet, God is mindful of man, and he cares for him. He has created man as the crown of creation to rule over his kingdom. He has crowned him with glory and honor. And as the, the author of Hebrews writes this to discourage saints, think about what an encouraging word that is to those who are suffering, to those who are feeling insignificant, those who are feeling forgotten by God, who are wondering if God cares about their plight, Oh, he most certainly does. God cares about man. Secondly, this morning we see the crown forfeited. In light of everything we just studied, the question arises, if God crowned man with glory and honor to rule over his creation, why don't we see that today? For those of you who joined our biblical theology of grief course, we compared the refrain from Genesis 1 to the refrain found in Genesis 5. In the creation account in Genesis 1, we read over and over again, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. But by the time we get to Genesis 5, what we see repeated over and over again is, and he died. And he died. And he died. 
something happened after creation that affected all of creation. And you know that in Genesis 3, we see what happened. Adam sinned. He disobeyed God's word and he suffered the consequences. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, we read, God speaking to Adam, and he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And a handful of verses later in verse 23, he says, Therefore, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. These are the consequences. As a result of Adam's sin, he lost the kingdom and the crown of glory and honor. It was forfeited. And as the federal head, the representative of all humanity, Adam's sin is imputed to every human being. Now, Satan, through deceiving Eve and causing Adam to sin, usurped the crown. We know in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we read, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, in the opening of that chapter, we read, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is from Adam's sin. And from Adam's sin, there's a downward spiral of sin that accelerated at a quick rate. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, in verse 5, we read this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So you remember the response that God had. He brought judgment upon mankind through a flood, sparing only Noah and his family. But all who were born were continually born into Adam's sin. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says in the latter part of verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. John MacArthur said about this quote, because all mankind fell in Adam, because he lost his kingdom and his crown, we do not now see the earth subject to man, end quote. G.K. Chesterton adds to that and says, quote, One thing is certain, man is not what he was meant to be, end quote. This is due to sin's effects. I mean, due to sin's effects, even the animal kingdom is no longer in subjection to man. Rather than ruling over the animals, now we must fear. I don't know any of you who are going to go pet a lion. That's not how it was originally created. The earth itself was subjected to man and originally produced all that man needed. All that he needed was naturally produced by the earth. There was an abundance for man to enjoy. But now, 
Because of Adam's sin, the ground produces thorns and thistles. Anything good from the ground only comes from hard labor. It is no longer freely provided and it is no longer guaranteed. You can work hard and still no crop. Rather than eating all of the ground's produce, we must now be aware of things like poisonous plants. Go on YouTube before you go camping. What can I touch and what can I touch? But speaking of dangers, there's more that has come from the fall. The earth is now filled with dangers. There's extreme temperatures, there's earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, fires. There's disease. Instead of living in peace, there's now war. What God created and said was good has been utterly infected with sin. Sin has infected the entire created order with rebellion and chaos. Romans 8, 20, we read, For the creation was subjected to futility. Two verses later in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pain of childbirth until now. All of creation has been cursed through Adam's sin and groans together with us for the world to come. Consider the pains, the agonies that man now endures. I mean, we need hospitals to care for disease and for injuries. We need police to protect us from evil. We need firefighters to protect us from destruction. And yet, even with all of these helps, we still face death and destruction. But praise God. Praise God that though the crown was forfeited, it will not always be this way. Beloved, a day is coming when the dominion that man lost will be restored to him. There will be no wars. There will be no more death. No more destruction and no more disease. No more pain and no more sorrow. Oh, what a glorious day indeed. Which leads us to our third point this morning, the crown restored. Taking a peek back at Hebrews chapter 2, going back to verse 5 in your Bibles. The writer gives us a hint that he didn't only have mankind in mind as he penned this, but he had a specific man. The God-man was also in his mind. When he writes, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, he is picking up his argument that he left off in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, where he had quoted Psalm 110, verse 1. Looking back at Hebrews Chapter 1, verse 13, we read, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Hey, at, the, at that time in his argument, he was arguing about the superiority of Christ over angels. And in light of this, the author of Hebrews has a twofold purpose for quoting Psalm 8. As we've previously noted, it was to show God's original intent in setting man as the crown of creation. And yet, looking at your Bibles and seeing where the author turns to in verse 9, 
we see that he points to the humanity of Christ. The one who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Look at verse 9. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews that the name Jesus is used. And his name is used in context with stressing his humanity and his work of salvation. And now we understand that Psalm 8 not only tells of the significance of man, but it's also a messianic psalm that has its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. In his incarnation, by taking on flesh, he was made lower than the angels. We read in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, reading through verse 8, speaking of Christ, we read, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. And we see the path to that crown was the cross. By the way of suffering, and his death, Jesus is now the exalted one. He was raised, he ascended, and he is enthroned at God's right hand. Philippians chapter 2 goes on, verses 9 and 10, and says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know, church, the, the time is coming when all things that are now under his authority will bow to that authority. This will occur when he returns at his second advent. The role ascribed to humans in creation, which Psalm 8 speaks about, has now been realized in Christ Jesus. It is through Jesus that many sons are brought to glory. Peek ahead in verse 10, you'll see that in chapter 2. It's through him. It is through Jesus that the fulfillment occurs for all of human destiny. Dennis e. Johnson says this, he says, quote, Although humanity's royal destiny is not yet visible, one man has traveled the painful route from lowliness to exalted glory. His name is Jesus, and his coronation is his reward for suffering death on the behalf of others, end quote. You know, as, as believers, we, we live in a kind of tension, uh, a tension between the already and the not yet, meaning we are already in the kingdom, and yet we look forward to the full manifestation of that kingdom. We already share in its blessings, and yet we await its total victory. 
we know that Christ is reigning now. And that we, saint, that we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And yet, the full realization of this reign is awaiting the second coming of Christ. We see later in Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 28, that the writer refers to this. And he says in Hebrews 9, 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Beloved, are you eagerly waiting for our Lord's coming? Do you say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says that it is that it's by the grace of God that he might taste death for everyone. This, this word taste, it means to experience. It's a Hebrew metaphor that means to partake of something fully. Jesus, he faced death in its fullness and with all of its horrors. And he tasted death for everyone. And you say, whoa, 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 whoa. What does that mean? It means that his death was sufficient to accomplish salvation for everyone, but it is efficient only for those who repent and believe. You know, you cannot just agree with the facts about Jesus. You must repent and place all of your trust, all of your hope in the finished work of Jesus, in him alone. Nothing that you do, none of your works, but all of your hope rests in his finished work. It's his death, Jesus' death, that has restored our crown and our reign. Romans chapter 5 and verse 17, we read, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Sin came through Adam, but righteousness and holiness and salvation comes through Christ, that we would reign through him. You know, when you think of Jesus, obviously Jesus did not deserve to die. He was the sinless one. It is sin that brings forth death. But his death represented the grace of God. The entire human race deserved to die because of its sin. But God poured out his grace by rescuing human beings from sin, by rescuing them from death. And it all came through the death of his son. John Calvin said, quote, Christ died for us, and that by taking on himself what was due to us, he redeemed us from the curse of death, end quote. F.F. Bruce continues and says, quote, Because the Son of Man suffered, because his suffering has been crowned by his exaltation, therefore his death avails for all, end quote. So then the question for you this morning is, have you repented? And have you turned to Christ and placed all of your hope and trust 
in what Jesus has done for you. That he is the only one that can save. The only one that can save you from sin and from death. That he alone is Lord and Savior. You must know this Jesus. You must be known by this Jesus. And this Jesus beckons you to come to him. And so do not wait any longer. No, it was this Jesus. It was his humanity and his death that enabled him to reign and regain and restore man's lost dominion. Listen to the way it's described in Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 4, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Beloved, all believers are in Christ. Throughout the New Testament, we read about the believer being in Christ. It, it describes the believer's identity. It, it describes their union with Christ. In, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. And he's praying about those who believe in him. And I'll pick up just a section of that. He says in John 17, beginning in verse 22, he prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. How does it hit you that your Savior prayed? In this manner, that we would be one with him as he is one with the Father. And yet it was through his suffering, the suffering of his death, that he was crowned with glory and honor. And now all those who are in him have their crown restored. We will reign as those crowned with glory and honor, because our Lord reigns as the one who is crowned with glory and honor, and we are in him forevermore. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 say, this reads, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The crown is going to be restored. One commentator put it this way. He said, quote, We may not often think of ourselves as kings and queens who rule over creation, but this consequence of our redemption flows directly from who the Lord made us to be and what salvation accomplishes in repairing his broken images. God made us to have dominion over creation, to rule it for his glory. 
we forfeited our ability to fulfill this vocation in Adam. But Christ has succeeded in reigning over creation as the last Adam. In him, we are now able once more to achieve our original purpose as righteous rulers of the world, end quote. Talk about putting it all together. What does that mean? It means that, beloved, we are kings and queens in Christ Jesus that we are now awaiting a glorious future kingdom where death is defeated and where sorrow, pain, and grief will be no more. (laughs) That the curse of sin will be lifted. That the presence of sin will be eradicated and all of creation will be restored to the perfect Eden-like reflection of God's glory. And we will reign with Christ. You know, 350 years ago, a hymn was penned that is continually sung because what we speak of is absolutely amazing grace. And as that hymn was penned, it goes like this. Many of you know it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when the flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Hallelujah, beloved. Before I pray, let's bow our heads and reflect on how God ministered to us through his word this morning. Let's take a quiet moment together. Grace, we praise you that you are a God who cares intimately for your people. You have created us in your image. You have sent your son to live and die in our place so that we may be with you forever. Lord, help us to always be mindful of your promises and of your character. We praise you that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. And in him, we too are crowned and will reign with him. To you be all honor and glory and praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, let's